Hello, this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Tyler Gage is an entrepreneur, investor, and advisor to companies that focus on ESG, the environmental, social, and governance aspects of business. He's also the author of an amazing book about his very unique journey as an entrepreneur. It's called Fully Alive, using the lessons of the Amazon to live your mission in business and life. He's the co-founder of a groundbreaking company called Runa, which produces clean energy drinks made from the leaf of a tree that grows in the Amazon rainforest. The company has provided a sustainable source of income for thousands of indigenous families. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk about the power of purpose, the role of aspirational communication, and other lessons you can use to build a good business that does good in the world. Let's start with your story. You were in college when you had an idea for a new kind of business, which went on to be the fastest growing beverage company in the US. Tell us the origin story of Runa. Bit of a twisted origin story. I got wrapped up with some professors when I was an undergraduate at Brown and had spent a couple of years back and forth researching the native languages of the Amazon. It was really fascinated specifically by how intimate the structure of the language was with their sense of the natural world and how it really oriented them very different ways to nature and to their environment than the English language does, for example. Um, a couple of examples of that is some of the tribes, they don't even have words for left or right. All they do is say up river, down river. So a sense of personal space separated from their environments, literally inconceivable or they're unable to articulate that. So lots of examples like that. Um, fascinated by the culture, the language, their relationship to the rainforest, and also saw that they really struggle at this intersection of modernity and their ancestral traditions. I wake up frequently and hear chainsaws cutting down hardwood trees the day after I'd heard these elders talk about how important it was to conserve the trees. But when they're faced with having money to send a kid to school or get emergency medical care for an elder, trees is their only way to get some cash. That's what they're going to do. So they unfortunately face these difficult trade-offs between their principles, their way of living, and the opportunities of a modern economy and modern world. So my last semester at Brown um, stumbled into an entrepreneurship class and was forced to write a business plan. And we threw out a bunch of horrendous ideas for undergraduate business plans. And one idea that came forward was to write a business plan to commercialize one specific Amazonian leaf that I ran across. It's a leaf called Guayusa, very highly caffeinated leaf that is endemic to this one sliver of the Ecuadorian Amazon had never commercially been produced, but it's a close cousin of yerba mate, which people are probably quite a bit more familiar with. And we saw an opportunity to create a business that could drive income into producers' pockets. And we thought if we could create some sort of market demand with these beverage products based on this healthy caffeine play, we could then use the supply chain as a way to create income for these farmers. Sounded great. We got really inspired by it, but largely thought it was just a class project. Um, we ended up winning Brown's business plan competition and the Rhode Island State business plan competition, which we had no expectation of. Um, all of us had other opportunities, but me and my, my good friend Dan both decided to pack our bags two days after graduating and move to the middle of the jungle to see if we could give this thing a go. And it was purpose-driven that way from day one. I think we realized that 
if for some crazy reason we can make this work, that it could create real impact. And it wasn't just a theory. It wasn't just a story, but we could ideally put concrete dollars in the people's pockets for something that meant a lot to them and their culture. And so, spend a co- yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll give an expedited version of uh, no, the keep going. a little bit, but we then moved to Ecuador and started building the company. Right. I wanted to pick up on your mention of impact. So you were clearly motivated by this vision of impact that this company could have. Say more about that. What was your vision? What was that impact that you saw the company could make in the world? For us, it ultimately came down to dollars. So for us, we fundamentally believe that if you can put earned income in farmers' pockets for a product that they sustainably produce and has some relevance for them in their lives, like Guayusa does for the, the Quechua communities in Ecuador, that by giving them that economic stimulus, they could be the drivers of their own future. So rather than us coming in and giving money or investing in secondary projects, we were generating income for something that they had produced and worked for. And then we could share that internationally as ultimately a symbol of their culture and the value of these resources. So on the one hand, it was very concrete. And we've always measured ourselves concretely. How many dollars per year of earning income are we putting in community pockets? Uh, And then second, there's this more immeasurable side of transforming the relationship we have to the resources of the Amazon. And rather than looking at it from this exploitation perspective um, or even planting crops that have nothing to do with the history of these communities like soy, that we're actually sharing this piece of these cultures with the world and using that as um, some sort of a, a messenger and an opportunity to gain more appreciation and connection to these resources. And it's that idea, that vision, that sense of purpose that drove you and your friend Dan to the Amazon with very little <laughs> to get, you kind of were starting from scratch. Complete scratch. I mean, neg- negative negative degrees of scratch is probably a better <laughs> description. Yeah, I mean, my degree was in literary arts. His was in marine bio. Uh, we had no business training and essentially showed up and we're asking these communities to sell something they had never sold and no one had ever bought before. So it took a lot of aspirational communication to show that we saw an opportunity here. And it was something that was worth some entrepreneurial effort on everyone's part. Yeah, so that first challenge was winning the trust of the indigenous people. Tell us about them. Tell us about the scene there on the ground. So the Quechua communities we work with are, um, they're more accessible. So some images people have of these, you know, extremely remote tribes who've never had contact with the Western world. That's 99.9% inaccurate anyway, in terms of the state of uh, Amazonian communities relationship to the Western world. Um, the Quechua in particular um, live only a few hours from Quito, from the capital of Ecuador. You just basically drive straight down the east side of the Andes Mountains and the upper Amazonian region is where we were working. Uh, these are communities who still speak Quechua, um, live in Quechua communities for the most part. Um, and have been interfacing with modernity for 500 years in, in mostly unfortunate ways. Um, largely farmers, though increasingly looking for work outside of cities and have very few reasons to stick around their farms. You know, farming is increasingly becoming an um, unproductive and unprofitable option for young families and also something that seemingly doesn't have value. So part of our approach was trying to give people something that could be higher income and also could be grown in the traditional manner that they manage crops. So 
Guayusa grows under the canopy. So that's another piece of the feature of how it grows is it best grows in shade. So it in its own um, productive needs gives a reason to keep the rainforest intact. And it's how they traditionally grow crops in this really cool kind of forest gardening method. So we were giving them something that was familiar in terms of how they normally manage resources in the rainforest, but then created this uh, more profitable economic opportunity with Guayusa. Yeah. And you mentioned two of my favorite words, aspirational communication. You like <laughs> aspirational communication? I didn't know that, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, what does that mean to you? So, I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot about this as something powerful through you. I feel like when we were approaching it originally, it was very instinctive. Um, I think for us, that was what we could lean into is we, we felt something and saw something special here. And to some extent, we were extremely inexperienced, right? We had no business acumen experience. We looked like we were 12 years old. But in a lot of ways, I think that played to our favor. I think for sure the communities and other partners saw that we wouldn't be there if we didn't really believe in this. And practically, like, I love the traditions of the Amazon. Just for me personally, I, I'm fascinated by them. I've always loved them. So I skipped over this part. The way the Quechua communities drink Guayusa is they get up at three in the morning. Uh, the whole family, the whole community gets up and sits around the fire and tell stories and interpret dreams. And for me, I spent many, 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 many mornings getting up at two, three, four in the morning and drinking Guayusa is one of my absolutely favorite things. So I think they saw from this very personal perspective that we had an immense respect for this tradition and really enjoyed it. And we saw that there was something powerful here that we could learn from and wanted to support. So I think that that side of it from this very empathetic place was maybe a, a taproot of the aspirational communication. And then for us being able to share in a heartfelt way what this meant to us and how we wanted to build a new opportunity through business to share the, the heart of what this tradition meant. Yeah. Yeah. You literally showed up <laughs> and they saw an overused word in this world, in this space is authenticity, but this is a great example of it. You, this was a authentic, meaningful, real cause for you, if you will. And they saw that they genuinely saw your interest and passion for, for them and their, and what they had to offer. Absolutely. And for them too, I mean, they love Guayusa. Like, especially for these communities, Guayusa is like their favorite plant ever on the face of the earth. <laughs> so for them, the idea as well that other people would like Guayusa, it's also not the most far-fetched thing. They're like, Guayusa is a gift to humanity. Of course, other people will like Guayusa and we should share it. Um, and I think we were impressed that um, very much on the whole, the communities were excited about the idea of sharing this plant. Um, absolutely. We dealt with frictions and tensions and this very valid question of sharing this tradition with other communities and people up north, especially through a sort of thorny business relationship, which inevitably it is. Um, but these communities very much saw that there was an opportunity to share this plant with other humans. And they thought that was fundamentally a good thing. And I think we were inspired and encouraged by that. And so your first challenge was winning the trust and confidence of the Quechua people and the folks who are gonna, who produce the Guayusa. And when you and I met, you were making lots of pitches to private investors and foundations and government agencies. You had quite a complex set of stakeholders. Um, and we worked on what I'd call an aspirational narrative about the company and 
a core belief to sort of formalize what you were what you were doing there and have formalized the way you were communicating it a bit more for these other audiences. Uh, what was that statement of belief? So that statement of belief was that we believe people everywhere can benefit from the bounty of the Amazon without destroying it, beginning with the people who live there. Uh, and I feel like we, we wordsmith that back and forth a lot and ultimately found something that, that resonated. Partly with the background I just gave, it was this inclusive message. So it's an inclusive message about everyone benefiting from the bounty and the resources of the Amazon without destroying it. So most other communication approaches I've seen in the space are largely um, fighting back against negativity, which is critical. The work that lots of these activist groups do is extremely important to push back against a lot of gnarly stuff that happens in this part of the world. And our role we saw as Runa was to be aspirational and progressive and say, we need to sort of draw some lines about how these resources are used and push back. And unless we have positive solutions of new ways we can interact between um, white people and these native communities, between developed countries and developing countries that it's just gonna stay tense. So we wanted something that was positive that way and inclusive and also respectful that the core needs to be starting with the people who live there. So um, again, tricky relationship. We were white dudes showing up, uh, working with a plant that is, is not from our culture. And we always did our very best to acknowledge that our goal here was to make this benefiting the communities who live there and have that be a centerpiece um, of mostly the operation. So it wasn't just a story, but again, the business itself being designed to create income for these communities uh, and then finding a way to, to tell that story. Yep. Yeah, I'm really struck by your sense of purpose was very clear from the beginning to create income for indigenous communities in the Amazon. And they saw that and understood that. And then you articulated that in other ways to your stakeholder set. And how is that going over with the government agencies, the foundations, the other kind of partners? Were people um, receptive from the get-go or there are challenges there? So amidst the litany of things we did atrociously and mistakes that we made, one of the few things I think we were initially quite good at, and again, had good instincts on and then got better, again, partly through your help, finding a systematic way to layer these pieces together is from that core um, statement of purpose, we then I think we're quite good at figuring out how to talk to different stakeholders in their language. So when it came to export agencies, we could talk about the ways that we would, you know, check eight of the 10 boxes of the government's priorities for increasing non-traditional exports from the country of Ecuador and could speak very much in their language, with their needs, with their development goals. When we spoke to conservation groups, we could talk about our reforestation initiatives, our agroforestry programs, uh, thoughts around biodiversity conservation. Uh, when we talk to investors, we could talk about beverages. We could talk about beverages for you know, 59 minutes of a, um, of a 60 minute meeting and just speak a beverage language. So. Uh, I think we got very good at figuring out which part of our sort of complicated web of Runa we could draw out for people and make sure that they saw they saw the value in the language that they understood. Yeah. So a strong foundation on a very clear mission and sense of purpose, but of course, then speaking to the interest of different stakeholders, their particular interests without losing sight of that foundation. Absolutely. And I think we struggle with that, like a lot of organizations do, where 
in having as many stakeholders as we did and having to support that network of it's tricky not to get pulled in lots of different directions. And um, it's tricky not to lose sight of that core focus. Um, for sure, there are times we probably could have said no to different opportunities and been more focused than we were. Um, and that's the balance because we believed in building this very community-driven, multi-stakeholder approach. Um, and from the core goal of building a successful, thriving business, we probably could have been more focused and more discerning with certain opportunities. Sure. Yeah, we all have that problem, <laughs> maintaining yeah. focus. Um, and when opportunities arise. The, and that is interesting, sort of leading to another question I had, again, about this role of that central sense and statement of purpose as being a touchstone or the North Star. Systems analysts and systems change thinkers say that having a clear sense of purpose like that is actually central to the success of any type of organization or complex system. And they say when everyone involved is on the same page about why they're there, the whole enterprise, the whole organization is more likely to achieve its intended outcomes and things do tend to work better along the way. Have you found that to be true in the real world in your experience? Absolutely. I mean, from our, from our story, that was the lifeblood of our, of our success and ability to grow. I mean, without that, by no means, we would have been able to do a fraction of what we accomplished. Well, give us an example of that for folks who, you know, to play that out. Well, I'm, I'll tell you, I remember talking with a gentleman who was a very senior sort of storied professional in the beverage industry mm -hmm. who was in retirement. He kind of came out of retirement to help you all address what I would imagine be a very tricky challenge of building a supply chain from a, a village in the Amazon basin to reach consumers in North America. And he told me it was that that clear, authentic purpose at the center of it is what motivated him. Absolutely. Yeah. So shout out to Tim Sullivan being a phenomenal support, he, yeah, very successful career at Pepsi. And he saw an opportunity to similar to us to do something concrete. And I, I think that's where our approach was successful is we weren't just trying to do something aspirational, but it was this combination of being mission driven and aspirational in a way that was doing something very concrete. Uh, and even practically with the relationship with people like Tim, I think they enjoyed working with us because we deeply valued their perspective. They would give us insights and then we would work like madmen to make things happen. And we'd execute, we'd make progress, we'd build things, we'd do R&D, we'd launch products, um, again, making constant mistakes. But there's something rewarding in this space that I see. Um, and that's why I like this broad space of social ventures, social businesses, that you're building something tangible and concrete and you're taking that lofty dream and in this like very almost etheric process going through the uh, the many stages of sort of nebulous translation from just pure imaginative concept into nuts and bolts of inventory and machinery and capex and all that um yeah so the story was great but it was the story combined with the fact that it was not just a story if that makes sense yeah absolutely i, I love that you're making that point because that is the whole point of what I like to call aspirational communication is to communicate in ways that inspire people to make change happen, right? Mm -hmm. To achieve ambitious goals that benefit people on the planet. Yeah. Um, and that, that sense of everyone being clear about why we're here helps keep you going through the complexities and the ups and downs and the successes and failures. Is that Absolutely. your experience with it? 
Absolutely, spot on. And you also won investments and endorsements from some big name celebrities. Uh, of course, people want to hear about that. Tell us about some of the celebrity endorsements and support you got. Yeah, a bit of a bizarre, unexpected pillar of our growth. We were very lucky to receive investments from Channing Tatum, from Leonardo DiCaprio, from Olivia Wilde, a handful of others who believed in the mission. I think from them, it was a combination of being inspired by what we were doing and through this conversation lens. And I think the piece that people miss is the title given to folks like that is usually celebrity, right? right. But in the actual line of work they're in, they're essentially professional storytellers. Mm -hmm. like literally what they do for a living is they tell stories and they think about life in a narrative framework. That's literally the definition of what they actually do. Yeah. Um, so for them to appreciate the subtlety and depth of the story that we were telling in a business context, different from you know screen context, I think they resonated with that. Um, definitely people like Channing and his team like the challenge. I think they also saw that we, we struggle to figure out how exactly to tell the story from a label, from a website, from a media point of view, and like the idea of trying to figure out how to do that, which, you know, we always all constantly struggled with. Uh, I'm never sure we, we cracked the code ultimately that, that well, but I think a lot of them liked the puzzle um, and like the idea that we were trying to, yeah, figure out how do you, how do you in a, you know, two inch by four inch label on the front of a can <laughs> in a mm -hmm. store, try and tell the immensity of the origin of this leaf, the purpose we have as a company, and the fact that it's a great tasting, energizing consumer product. So um, yeah, a combination of the, the narrative framework with the challenge intrigued a lot of them. Mm. Yeah, and that's interesting. I remember you always kept your eye on the ball of the consumer, which is people got to buy this drink or this whole aspiration is going nowhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of our, in the early days, we very much focused our brand storytelling on the communities and the origin. And it took us some time to realize that what people were more interested in was the fact that this was a clean source of caffeine and you could drink this and get a nice boost without same kind of jitters you would get from other caffeinated products. Uh, and it was a great tasting, we call it, you know, clean energy from a leaf, not a lab. Yep. So figuring out how to speak to consumers in a way which would drive purchases and then the purchases in and of themselves would generate income back through the supply chain, sort of decoupling those pieces of storytelling and actual impact of the business allowed us to play with those different pieces in each of their context. Mm. Yeah, the winning combination there sounds like that aspirational narrative about the purpose that got all these different stakeholders excited about it, but also the absolutely critical need of value proposition and product positioning in the marketplace and all of that. These things go together. Yeah. And that, that to me is the difference that I make and types of businesses I like where the actual impact in the most concrete way doesn't depend on the story. You know, we would always say that if someone drank one of our energy drinks and just thought it was an energy drink that gave them energy and knew nothing about where it came from, didn't know, didn't care versus the consumer who had been to the Amazon, had got up at three in the morning, drank Wyusen and meant something deeply to them. Ultimately, from our goal as a business and the core impact we wanted to create, there's no difference in those two. They were purchasing a product and we purchased those leaves at a good price from farmers. That's what created that impact. 
There's secondary impact, of course, but from a core perspective, the impact was built into the structure of the business and the core operations of, of how it worked. Yeah, tell us about some of the impact, looking back on it. Yeah, so the business has created millions of dollars of cash income to farmers um, and still does. We've planted over 1.2 million trees to date. Uh, we were a hybrid organization, which I'm not sure I mentioned fully. So we were half for-profit, half nonprofit. Um, our nonprofit continues to support the same communities and has grown to now work up in the Andes and in different countries in South America uh, to support communities with similar ventures, new products, uh, sustainable ways of farming. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a journey, but definitely the amount of land that's being sustainably managed and the direct cash income are the two metrics that we're most proud of. Yeah, it's amazing impact. Um, let's switch gears um, to one of your other roles in life is as a successful author. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book, Fully Alive, which for those who haven't seen it, um, is packed full of amazing stories, which you can get a sense of here listening to Tyler, of this young entrepreneur showing up in the Amazon, starting from below scratch to build a business and also really interesting insights that really could only come from a place like that. Uh, and the, the book promises lessons from the Amazon to help you with your mission in business and life. So let's talk about some lessons. What's, uh, what's one of your favorite useful lessons from the Amazon? There's a few. I would say the, the core theme in a lot of what I try and communicate in the book is that it's not necessarily Amazon centric. So a lot of the problems that we dealt with were in this very, very specific context, but we all deal with jungles of one form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly making decisions without perfect information. We're constantly trying to wade through some form of uncertain chaotic situation uh, and trying to do so in a way which is constructive and with high integrity. So several different tools and lots of different case studies in the book as well around how to do that. Um, a lot of the balance and story I try and tell is how to connect the idea of intuition with sophisticated, rigorous thinking. And I think it's something, especially as CEOs and as entrepreneurs, we have a lot of intimacy with of having to know when to dig deep into your own personal insight and have conviction, and then when to doubt yourself, run analysis, stare at spreadsheets, get insights and make those decisions. Um, a lot of the process I've come to and relate is this idea of going sort of head, heart, head. So by that, something needs to start from a place of conviction, yet it can't stop there. It then needs to go into this process of understanding implications, risks, costs, advantages, disadvantages, but then it also can't just stop there. It can't just be there was a conviction and then it just goes to this analytical place. It then ultimately needs to come back to a place of conviction, um, especially when it comes to a new initiative, a major new hire, a new expansion. If there's not ultimately a source of heart for something, um, purely relying on analytics is, in my view, not a source of either competitive advantage from the business side or a space of long-term meaning and impact. Yeah, interesting. It resonates with research in behavioral economics and motivational psychology about sort of this sense of purpose and the passion that can come along with it, help drive you through difficult times 
to stick with it, to figure out the complexities, things like that. A very practical way that this sort of intangible stuff on the side of intuition can play into the, you know, the hard realities of business. Definitely. And that's also what I picked up a lot being the Amazon is taking a more sophisticated approach to this concept of intuition. I think in our culture, we relegate it to this vague dimension of human experience that can sometimes be revered and sometimes be belittled. In the Amazon, they have very um, sophisticated approaches to subtle forms of perception, both understanding that in themselves in relationship to the environment around them. And I think there are absolutely ways to train that, to have that deeper awareness inside ourselves. And again, for sure, from an executive leadership point of view, the CEOs I work with now advise, it's a daily struggle, right? Of, is this the right opportunity or am I attached to it? Is it part of my ego? Am I afraid? Is this thing I'm picking up on because of some risk assessment I have or because of some personal shortcoming it might expose in myself? That stuff all gets super jumbled. And I think it takes a certain degree of poise, awareness, and honesty with ourselves, which is constantly a challenge to be able to separate some of those threads to figure out when we have a quote, you know, hunch or feeling about something, what's the actual texture around that, and then be able to make more um, informed and wise and caring decisions from a place of insight. And the book really does that. I mean, you tell your personal story in a very authentic way, some would say vulnerable way, um, and the lessons you learned and how they've guided you. Um, Give us an example there, sort of you as yourself on your entrepreneurial journey through Runa and to where you are now. Um, a lesson from the Amazon that's guided you personally, an additional lesson, I should say. Well, one quick thing, yeah, I tell the story in the book is I almost got kicked out of the company uh, when we ran into some challenges and got into a, a very difficult situation with my board. And in that process, I saw and tell this story in a lot more detail in the book that I had become very attached to sort of my directive of the company and my way of doing it and not being in service of something which I had originally committed to. Um, so it took me time and I tell the stories about how I was able to realize through my own internal narrative, my attachment, my actions, that I wasn't actually being in service of the thing and that I was actually, um, being more egoic than I should have been. And so through some of these practices, whether it's basics like spending time in nature, advisory support, et cetera, I think we can help figure out when things are tough, where our personal contribution is. So, and that was a lot of that story and other stories of, it's so much easier to think about the external or exogenous forces and blame them or get caught up in that story. Um, but for me, when I've been able to like turn the lens first and foremost on myself and figure out even if it's a small piece of a tricky situation, what am I doing both in my own actions, words, beliefs to contribute negatively to what's being created and deal with that first and foremost from as humble and um, responsible of a perspective as possible and then showing up to deal with the situation. The book is called Fully Alive, Using the Lessons of the Amazon to Live Your Mission in Business and Life. And I would recommend it. To everyone listening who um, would like to read some amazing stories and learn some really valuable lessons as you're hearing here. Uh, Tyler Gage, I would love to talk with you more. Um, 
and we'll do it again sometime. But I uh, really love the time uh, we've had with you today to hear about your really amazing journey, starting a really amazing company that's made very meaningful impact in the world. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Doug. I appreciate it.